Dobro jutro. Kje je tvoje pivo? Any Slovenskans here? That, that was something that my great-grandfather would have said just about any place that he went. Uh, and it simply means, uh, hello, where's the beer? Huh? Well, we're going to talk a little bit about why there isn't any beer. There wasn't any beer. But, um, but first, I'd like, to, uh, I'd like to tell you what an honor it is for me, one, to come up here and uh, to be able to, to come up and uh, be on the same, the same day as, as Tony Incasciola, um, who is just a, an incredible, incredible individual, cultural icon, teacher, and, um, and, and a very, very good man. And I also want to recognize that we have, uh, tonight we have, in the Salish language, tribal council is, uh, is, is pronounced Ch'open. And Ch'open simply says, means the 10. And, and tonight we had, um, we had four of those tribal councilmen, Troy Felsman, Carol Langford, Leonard Gray, and Ron Trahan, to come and also, uh, also honor Tony. And that's very, very special very special and he certainly deserves it. I want to also thank uh, the Yamansut uh, drum for coming, uh, our young people, and, and I, I, I just have the compulsion to, uh, to say one more thing about, about folks and, and uh, that means something a great deal to us. And, and that's that this has been a really, really difficult um, year for the Montana Historical Society as far as cutbacks, cutbacks through our state legislature. And, and because of that, um, we've, uh, we, we've had um, really for the first time to have to, to have to have, try, uh, have some of our employees leave. And um, well, you know, when you're here, you're, you're part of the, uh, the reward of the efforts that those employees made. They are professionals, they are our friends. Uh, Lori Morrow um, retired this past uh, uh, five days ago, actually, and Lori had been with us at the Historical Society for 45 years. 45 years. Yeah. And there, there are two ladies that um, are, because of those budget cuts, longtime employees that are not here with us, and, and I want to recognize them because they mean a great deal to me um, as a historian and as a Montanan. And that's, uh, I want to recognize Rebecca Bauman and Sue Near. Um, we've, 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 had, uh, we've had others that have gone, and I want to include them as well. But, um, you know, I usually don't get a chance like this to thank people ahead of time, but um, here I am up at the dais, the last speaker of the, of the night. I can see heads already bobbing, but I want to take time and thank my wife of, uh, uh, we're in our 45th year of marriage, my wife Carol, who's, who's here. Uh, okay. The topic I was uh, assigned for, uh, for tonight is um, the topic of prohibition. And, um, and I can't think of a better topic to just bring everybody down. Huh? <laughs> Your heads are bobbing and you're going to be either really angry when we're done or completely asleep. But every once in a while, I'm going to pound on the desk just to wake you up. Okay? All right. Forgive me. Um, 
Prohibition. Yo, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. Huh? Oh, my apologies to uh, Barrett Strom, Norman Whitfield, Edwin Starr, and The Temptations for my adaptation. Um, uh, you know, when you're in the third grade, I did have to get that off my chest, thank you. Um, when you're in the third grade, you, uh, in your English in, uh, class, you start uh, learning about a word called onomatopoeia. Anybody remember that? Um, or uh, ecumimetic. Ecumimetic. Isn't that a great word? I think I had one on the back of my wrist one time, and it was, no, that's not true. Ecumimetic, what does it mean? It's, it's a word that, um, that, uh, that sounds like its meaning. And one of those words that came to me as I was just thinking about this tonight was, uh, um, you don't have to speak English if somebody says, you're rude. Huh? You're rude. It just sounds bad, doesn't it? How about, how about the, the, the word wretch? As soon as you hear it, you, you, oh, yeah, this is not good. Well, to me, prohibition is one of those words. And I thought about it. As a matter of fact, prohibition is rude. Huh? And when I say it, it makes me wretch. Huh? Hey, prohibition. Well, what is it? What is it? What was prohibition? In Montana, we've tried prohibition actually many times. And, um, and, and there are a number of things that lead up to prohibition, which is simply, at least it was here and in the, in the, uh, in the United States, it was, it was simply the prohibition of manufacturing, transporting, possessing, using alcohol. Huh? Using alcohol. And when it came around at a time when it was probably right for that, what was going on in, during all these uh, classes that we've had the last two days, what was going on in the country? There was a great deal of political chaos. Uh, women were uh, working for the right to vote. We had civil unrest. We had World War I. We had immigration. There were a number of people that sensed things just aren't going well here, right? and they wanted to put their finger on what is it that's causing all of these ills in the United States. And uh, they chose alcohol, huh? They chose alcohol, and there were groups that, um, that were really worried about the fact that, especially here in Montana, that we were beginning to lose our agrarian way of life. Our agrarian, in fact, as they called it, the, the idealistic idealistic agrarian way of life. Doesn't that sound good? Huh? <laughs> yeah, it does sound good. It does sound good. Unfortunately, they were saying, we're going to blame it on industrialization here in Montana and across the world, or across the United States. And doggone it, the reason for it is alcoholism. And we have a good way to take care of that. We're going, to, we're going to fix that notion that the country's falling apart. Several groups decided to, um, decided to work on it very specifically as groups themselves. Um, often, often the um, recognition of prohibition um, is blamed on uh, folks from the South. We got any Southerners here? Okay, par pardon me, um, but I'm, I'm going to talk about your area and uh, and 
people from the south and the rural north were the, uh, the people that first really emphasized prohibition in this country. And there were a couple of, uh, couple of groups that were going to capitalize on that, that unrest. The emotion of anti-German because of the war, patriotism, patriotism, and uh, what were those groups? Well, there were many of them, but we're going to talk just for a bit about the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Do we have any members here? <laughs> Yikes. I knew this was going to be a tough room to work. Um, well, the other group was the Anti-Saloon League. Any, any descendants from them? Oh, good. Okay. Well, they were generally made up of whom? Well, church groups. Church groups were a good place to start if you're looking at eliminating uh, alcohol in the country. And we start to see a separation of, uh, of different church groups that supported, that supported the idea of no, no alcohol. Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, Congregationists strongly supported prohibition. Now, what political party did they belong to? <laughs> well, primarily they belonged to the Republican political party. Talking about party politics in Helena. How, how fitting. Okay. Liturgical churches, generally speaking, didn't support prohibition. Who were they? Well, they were the Catholics, the Episcopals, the Lutherans, and the Jewish population. There were a lot of people that didn't support the idea of prohibition that lived in large cities. Who were they? Oh, they were the Democrats, huh? Generally speaking, now just as a disclaimer, I keep saying generally speaking, so nobody gets really angry with me, okay? Uh, there were exceptions, sure. What we saw, though, here in Montana and across the country was the beginning of a class struggle. People have been talking about it for the last two days. Uh, owners of industry versus whom? Versus labor, immigrants and unions. Now, for the first time, we saw that very openly with dynamited uh, union, union halls. We started seeing it right here in Helena when um, the term pressure politics came into vogue. Part of prohibition. Now, one of the things that the Anti-Saloon League had a very, very difficult time with was there was another group that supported their philosophical stand. What was that group here in Montana? Okay, I'll tell you. It was three letters, okay, and they were all K. Okay. Are you catching on here, huh? The Ku Klux Klan. We have the Klan in Montana. It was in every state, actually, in the Union at that time. And they, didn't, they uh, supported prohibition. The poor anti-saloon league had such a difficult time distancing themselves from that. Um, and so what happened? Well, it took off across the country that uh, it was patriotic to, um, to support. You were a good American if you supported prohibition. And it went up to a vote. Went to a vote and, um, and it passed. It passed. Woodrow Wilson, the, uh, the president at the time, vetoed the bill. And I'm sure you all know that. Um, and uh, then it was overridden by a two-thirds majority of the Congress. And it came into, uh, into being as the Volstead Act. That sounds rude, doesn't it? It makes you wretch. 
Huh? Volstidak, yeah, became effective. Now, how did that affect Montana? Well, it affected us directly, very directly. And how? Taxes. We lost tax support that was very, very important to the infrastructure of the state. What else? It introduced organized crime or gave an opening for that. Thousands of people here in this state were put out of work. They became something that was called victims of legislated morality. Doesn't that sound creepy? Huh? Oh, I'm sorry. He's a victim of legislated morality. Um, have pity on him. Well, who were those people, those victims? Well, they were farmers to begin with. They were brewers, winer, uh, wineries, distillers, saloons, restaurateurs, truckers, railroads, government employees that didn't have that tax base. Um, farms bankrupted. And who was directly, directly affected by that? The banks. It was very, very difficult. And one of the things that came out of prohibition, very, very important, certainly to me, was that breweries were forced to close down. How many breweries did we have in Montana prior to, to uh, prohibition? Hundreds. Hundreds. Well, I like, I like that answer. It's wrong, but, but, but I, I, I really like it. Um, might as well shoot for the sky. And we had about 80, okay? We had about 80 before prohibition, 1919. And, um, and what happened to those, those families that had worked their entire lives to build a, a wonderful industry here in Montana that provided a huge uh, tax benefit to the state? They simply were out of business. Their profit, probi uh, help me here. <laughs> okay, don't help me, okay? <laughs> their, their livelihood. Um, was suddenly made illegal, okay? It was illegal. What did they do? They had millions of dollars across those 80 breweries, and, um, and suddenly it was against the law to use their product. So they had to sell off their assets. Um, they, were, uh, they were not compensated in any way by the national government or the state government. They simply were put out of business. Now, what did they, they had to sell their buildings, their autos, their trucks, their machinery, their horses, their wagons, their buildings. Many breweries had their employees living in, in uh, company houses. They had to get rid of them as well. What else happened? It hurt communities in the way that when breweries shut down, sponsorships suddenly disappeared in those communities. Sports teams, no sponsorship. Civic donations in Butte, isn't it wonderful, no matter what we talk about, it always comes back to Butte at some point, huh? Okay. <laughs> I wonder why, yeah. A lot of breweries in Butte, a lot of priests, a lot of confessionals. No matter what it is, it always comes back to my favorite city. And um, in Butte, there were civic organizations that uh, would sponsor an entire page to help the citizens in, in their city. And the breweries had to pull out of that because they didn't have the money anymore and their business was illegal. Who did that affect? Well, it affected civic donations to orphanages, to church groups, to uh, polio victims, to veterans. And who did it really affect? Every one of those little kids that went to public school because their taxes 
had been, uh, their tax supports had been changed dramatically. Those breweries, that, those brewers, they tried to stay in business. How did they do that? What do you think? Wonderful businesses, well, they, they produced something really, really horrible called near beer. Any, anybody ever taste near beer? One half of 1% alcohol and the other 99.5% is just yuck. Huh? It's, oh, it's awful. Near beer. Um, they produce cheese, uh, jams, jellies, soda pop, juices. Some uh, Montana breweries became canneries. Anybody ever been to Red Lodge? When you drive into Red's Lodge, that huge building as you're just coming into town, that was the Red Lodge Brewing Company. And it turned into a pea cannery. <laughs> not the same, just not the same. Um, some were turned into warehouses. The, uh, the brewery in Lewistown became a honey factory. Some were turned into barns, seed companies, ice plants. One was a community dryer for products. But I think one of, the, one of the most dreadful circumstances was the federal government got in, involved and said, not only do we have prohibition, but we have something that will take the place of beer. Take the place of beer. And they tried that in Montana. Have you ever heard of a drink made with a Brazilian product called yerba mate? You can still buy the stuff in health food stores. Okay. Well, I, I, I talked about yuck with, um, with the uh, cereal beverages, with the near beer. If, go, this is your assignment. We've had teachers talking here. Your assignment is, uh, is to go to a health food store tomorrow and buy a 12-ounce can of yerba mate. Buy a 12-ounce can of a good beer. Drink that Butte special and then follow it, chase it with a yerba mate. Oh, bad, very, very bad. Um, that's what the government said would replace beer. It, it simply didn't work, huh? Well, what changed the sentiment? We, we voted in this, this horrible act of prohibition. We put all of these uh, Americans and Montanans out of a job. We lost the taxes that supported our schools. Um, did that change alcohol in the United States, and specifically in Montana? No. Not at all. It simply went underground. Uh, why were people starting to think differently about it? Well, because they were, they were realizing that loss of taxes. They weren't necessarily um, striving for a higher plateau of being. This didn't have the taxes. And those people that supported often, generally, there's my word again, that generally supported prohibition, those businessmen, they were finding that the citizens in their communities didn't have the money to come in to their retail stores and buy their products. Boy, suddenly prohibition wasn't sounding quite as good. Went underground, what did it do? Well, it made, it made um, a generation of citizens lawbreakers. I bet some of your families were lawbreakers. I know my family was a lawbreaker. My, my great-grandmother uh, had a home still in the Lozar house in uh, East Helena. And she helped, uh, because my grandfather had lost his saloon in East Helena, and so grandma had to supplement the, the income. And how did she do that? 
She commenced brewing and distilling in her house. As a matter of fact, the, um, there were a lot of different ways that people hid those illegal citizens now, it hid their law breaking. Some had trap doors in their houses. My family had a trap door in, a, um, in their uh, business um, in Dixon. Anybody ever been to Dixon? Wow, not many of you. Well, you should go there because I always have thought of it as the, kind of the Fort Lauderdale of Montana. Huh? <laughs> Check out Dixon. There's an old mercantile building there that my, my grandpa ran. And in the, back, in the back room, there was a trap door there. And, um, and fellows would come over. They would, the trap door was dug right down into dirt, had a table. And fellows would come over and drink illegal alcohol and play cards, huh? hiding it. Yeah, one of my, one of my distant friends or family uh, in Butte, how did they hire, uh, hide their alcohol? Everybody has, has some idea. Well, in Butte, this is, this is another one of those great ideas. Um, how many of you know what a water closet is? Huh? Yeah, you had lots of water closets. One of the best ways to hide your illegal liquor was to, and the flushing box up on top of the water closet was usually up pretty high, wasn't it? Huh? What a good place to hide your what? To hide your hooch, yes. Yeah, to hide your, so when people come over and uh, prohibition is on and you say, let's sit down and have a little friendly drink, they would climb up onto the toilet seat, reach down into that cold water in the water closet, and pull out a drink. Huh? I, when, I, when I thought about that, I, I kind of got the idea. I, I wonder how many of them took that first drink and said, wow, this tastes like... <laughs> just a thought, uh, just a thought. Um, where do they hide? <laughs> where, where do they hide, uh, hide their liquor? They hid it in, uh, in their hair. Huh? In those ratty bouffant hairs, in hats and boots and trousers, in sleeves, and in breastplates. Breastplates? I can see the question marks on all of your heads, so I'm just going to say, breastplates? Yeah, what, what was that? Well, it's kind of like a license plate. Wrong again. I love this section already of, the, of, of, of our group over here. No, breastplates were when organized crime moved in to the state of Montana, um, there, there were lots of different ways to, uh, to meet uh, with bootleggers to, uh, to then disperse through the cities and bring your wares to the different places that were willing to buy your contraband. One of them, and my wife pointed this out to me just a few days ago, and I think this is ingenious, bootleggers would get together and the revenuers would often come and look for Look for their tracks, huh? And follow them. What do these Montana bootleggers do? This is brilliant. They took hoofs from cows and they stuck them on the bottom of their shoes. So, so the revenues went on. Oh, that, nothing but a bunch of cows around here, huh? Isn't that great? Who thinks of that stuff? I, well, I like it anyway. Okay, what else did they do? They put uh, alcohol in their uh, inner tubes of their cars, even the spares. They, uh, they put it in their canes, and they would unscrew the top of their cane and have a little nipster, huh? 
My favorite, the, the breastplates. They would have ladies with these, these uh, steel cans or canisters and, and they would strap them to their, around their breasts and, um, and they had a little spigot for dispensing and, and, a, and a, heavy, a heavy coat and, uh, and they would go out into the neighborhood and dispense. That's how one of them got busted, by the way. Uh, she was caught dispensing from her breastplate. And uh, again, my mind is wandering and I, and I got to thinking that what are a couple of guys setting up town watching one of these buxom ladies walk by? What would they say to themselves? Wow, there goes a couple of cans. Huh? <laughs> Woo! And they'd be telling the truth, wouldn't they? Huh? Yeah. Well, that's right. That's right. So, there was a lot of confusion over what was, what was uh, um, worth going after by the revenuers because they didn't know for sure what actually was intoxicating. There was an ongoing, uh, an ongoing discussion through the first parts of Prohibition and, uh, and they, uh, some said, well, uh, near beer, half of 1%, that's okay. Okay. Others said, no, 4% alcohol is not intoxicating. How about 3.2? Huh? Gee, we really don't know, but by God, we're going to go out and arrest those people if they got some. And that's what they did. Revenues came into Montana, and uh, they realized that it was such a lucrative trade that as they went out to bust the bootleggers, they found that these guys are making a whole lot more money than we are. So how can we cut ourselves into this? Huh? How can we cut? What started happening? Well, we found out that uh, a lot of those, those revenue agents were not necessarily, what? Legal. Legal. Up and up. We talked about those confessionals. Yeah, they should have visited them because they were out and they often would bust somebody that had illegal alcohol, hold it for a few days, and then sell it back to them. Huh? And sell it back to them. Oh, great return on your money. Um, prostitution got involved. How about the old saying, a trick and a drink for one price? Now, is that marketing or what? Huh? Oh, Montanans are great, aren't they? Um, and one of the things that, um, any lawyers in the crowd here? I know there's at least one, huh? Any lawyers in the crowd? <laughs> okay. okay, all right. They're really, there's a few in here that are really reluctant to pick their hands up, but, but believe it or not, there were pretty illegal-minded uh, lawyers. And what they would do is when somebody got busted, people would go to them to represent them before the courts, and the lawyers would charge, get this, Absorbent prices. You ever hear of an attorney charging an absorbent price? Well, the poor guy that wanted him to represent him ended up having to pay that price because the attorneys would say, if you don't pay me my price, I'm going to say you're guilty. Huh? I'm going to say you're guilty. Wow. Wow. What do you do about that? 